I keep racing down the stormy highway searching for the whereabouts of my interpret dream, letting all my lies and bitter illusions blow off my back with the wind, where all the lonely hearts in the big city, everyone a child lost in love, day by day in the big city, tears only aggravate thoughts that won't rest. Tonight, hurricane. I want hurricane. To tell you I love you tonight, hurricane. Touch me, hurricane. I'm Chris Spivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today on Jodless, we talk about bubblegum crisis. Come on. Like this you did this is payback for anything else I was gonna use. What? <laughs> this is payback for the big O, isn't it? <laughs> Originally, so I didn't memorize that for people listening. We, I, that's on my note sheet. Originally I had the entire song and I thought Eddie got to do his bit for <laughs> the big O and the first Voltron. I could potentially sing this whole thing very badly. That's true. I won't care. I'm horrible at karaoke, but I still will go and do it. Or at least in the before times. It, of course, instead you decided to, to, to Shatner it, so, which is even better somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, welcome, welcome everyone to Bubblegum Crisis or aka Blade Runner meets Terminator <laughs> meets IP lawsuits. Yeah. Remember when last episode we were like, wow, this is an awful lot like Batman. I wonder how they got away with this. <laughs> wow. This is an awful lot like Blade Runner. <laughs> Wow. So where to start? Where to start? Um, I, I loved Bubblegum Crisis when I saw it 20 odd years ago. And in mm-hmm. my brain, I had s- stitched together that it was like a cohesive, coherent, ongoing story. I even own the RPG books for the Telesaurian Games put out. Mm-hmm. I've run a few campaigns with it. So I guess in my mind, I'd already made the story. But going back and watching it and then falling down a rabbit hole about it. Has uh has shown me that it is not the cohesive story I had led myself to believe. Yeah, same. Like once I started doing, I watched it and I started doing research, and I remembered that when we were getting these as VHS tapes in the U.S., it was one episode per tape. So we, at least I was, didn't really see a compilation of the entire show for like many years i'd watch it at basically whatever episode happens to be in the video store to rent at that time so i watched them all kind of out of order and in my head i put them together into an order that seemed like just again sweeping epic narrative and it's not that <laughs> um so uh i think one of the most important things to really talk about for bogum crisis and is that Originally, it actually suffered a number of internal lawsuits, and mm-hmm. they lost funding from different organizations, and so it became, whew, they lost some of their artistic people behind it by, I think, episode four, and uh, I shared one of the rabbit holes with you. I don't know if you had a chance to, to view it I on YouTube. Actually. About the Yakuza connection to yes. the Christ and the Creator. I It's... Um, it, I knew about the lawsuit. I knew that uh, it was originally supposed to be 13 episodes. Um, there were some legal conflicts on who owned which piece of the show, and it fell apart around episode eight. 
I did not know the Yakuza were brought in to try to strong arm one of the license holders into giving up their rights. That was new. And then one of the creators went into hiding for 20 odd years. Yeah. And passed away like a year and a half ago. That was wild. So for folks that are interested, I would suggest going and doing your own dive into the research of bubblegum crisis. It is so fascinating, almost on par with the show itself. And you would almost think that uh, the genome corporation was coming after one of the creators. Yeah, it, um, it's a lot, but it's, it's also wild because this is, um, early, uh, what are called OVAs where they weren't making this for television. They were making this direct, direct to video effectively. Um, and so the reason why it was kind of drawn out and you could have lawsuits like that is that they're not making an episode a week. They're putting out an episode like every couple of months. So like this, this whole, this, these eight episodes take like over three years to eventually release. So there's lots of time between episodes. And to be fair, the animation really showcases that the animation is gorgeous throughout. Primarily, but you can also tell where they started having some financial problems and it sort of was impact the animation either by the episode length that they shorten the episode yes. to make sure they try to keep that high production value. And sometimes even that just sort of slipped off the, the sidebar. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for me, I mean, I, I'm with you in the sense of I, th- for me, this was kind of f- not formative cyberpunk because I was in the cyberpunk in the late eighties, but certainly a lot of my cyberpunk knowledge Prior to this was very literary. I, I read William Gibson. I read a lot of his contemporaries in the late 80s. I played the original uh, Cyberpunk first edition tabletop game. Uh, and then Bubblegum Crisis and Akira came out kind of roughly at the same time. Uh, and that really cemented to me the look of Cyberpunk. To me, that was what Cyberpunk looked like. This kind of a sleek yet chunky technology um, that looks dated now but also had a kind of of aesthetic charm and just cool factor that i don't think i ever got away from it to me this is 90s cyberpunk just in my mind always oh speaking of akira though that would be a great special i'm I'm gonna note that in my brain for later like a little check mark now actually um i want to i want to take a a digression about uh uh, both akira and bubblegum crisis because uh I ran into some weird gatekeeping when I was younger in the 90s about both of these shows uh, because I watched Akira and I watched what bits of Bubble and Prices I could. And I was like, I don't get it. I, I don't get what these things are. I mean, they look cool as hell. And, and I love the, the acting and I love the um, the visuals of it. But I just don't understand what's going on. And I had so many people like, oh, you're just too dumb to understand. There's just so many different layers happening here. And to Akira's credit, there is genuinely some fascinating art stuff happening to Akira. But also it's fair to say it was a mangled translation. And for Bubble Crisis, there's just bits missing. I mean, there's just <laughs> stuff that is not explained. And for decades, I was convinced that I was the problem. I was like, I just don't understand this. Maybe I don't understand Japanese culture. Maybe there's a nuance here. And for I, for so long, I tried to wrap my head around it. And then when I finally watched a new translation of Akira, 
and read the manga, I was like, oh no, there's just shit missing. <laughs> there was shit that was just not explained. <laughs> now I get it. So there's this weird kind of component of um, cyberpunk nerds in the 90s who wanted to seem like they were much more intelligent than they were. But also they weren't entirely wrong because there is some interesting nuance here. At least, or sorry, with Akira particularly. Bubble on Crisis, I was like, this just looks like a, a ripoff of Blade Runner and Terminator. I don't understand what's happening here. And now that we've done research, it turns out it was in fact heavily inspired by Blade Runner and Terminator. Uh, <laughs> and, and But I was like, it, it, was, it was interesting. It, it was an interesting bit of, of gatekeeping from the 90s that because we did not have ready access to information, you could be bamboozled into thinking there was just nuance there that you were missing. So I'm I'm going to say you're leaning very heavily on the word inspired. <laughs> I'm trying to be generous here. It's doing a lot of heavy lifting, and I hope that it doesn't sprain its back. <clears throat> I mean, we, we got through Big O with the word inspired. <laughs> Do it again. All right. So before we get into it, I have to do this. Though. So the Big O, we know they had basically stand in for all the characters. And they didn't use the exact name for the characters, though, like, Wayneson is uh, really close. close. <laughs> but if you're who I think is a main character, Pris is literally named for Pris from Blade Runner. And her right. band is Pris and the Replicants and Decker hunted Replicants. Right. And when she takes off, like, her Pris wig, it is basically Rachel. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, ugh, like, that's so much but at the same time i still love this show even though it's not that co cohesive like plot i envisioned uh whenever i hear hurricane i'm automatically taken back to my youth and i'm like in for the ride like wherever we're going oh let's god. do it the music oh my god i mean um we had watched robotech where there was like three or four songs and at the time that was huge right they're like oh my god there's three different songs um but there's three or four new songs every episode of this. I mean, you can get an album's worth of music easily from this show. And they're all bangers. They're all good. Granted, some of them are also like heavily inspired from other <laughs> musical pieces. Um, the, we didn't even talk last episode about how the big O is the theme is basically Queen. Um, <laughs> and we have similar songs here where it's like, some of these are really good, but also it's like, I've heard that bit before. I know I've heard that song somewhere, um, but still, I mean, it, it, it doesn't. It is such an eighties tastic soundtrack, and you're right. I mean, I hear Hurricane, I hear Soldier Girls, and I'm immediately back there. And one of the big things for the creators was, though, since people were buying the, o the OAVs back in the day, and they were expensive, they would have been ninety dollars, but they cut them down to sixty to try mm -hmm. to keep the sales up was that they wanted there to be enough music that in of itself it sort of made it worthwhile to buy it. And that worked really well cool. because they had a rock star basically singing Pris's part, who was a, I think it was sort of a, an antagonist to the Minmay version of the, of the person because there was also like the voice of Minmay who was the counter opposite of this person. And mm -hmm. I go back to Robotech specifically because for the new generation slash next generation slash the next wave, because um, <laughs> I never remember, so I just throw them all in there, is that Rook was actually the prototype for Press. But oh. since they had Yellow Dancer, they couldn't have two singers. 
So they right. pull that part out of Rook, but otherwise Rook is Pris, the the biker who could sing, who can fight, who can do all those things in a transforming motorcycle mecha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I could definitely see that. And, and that was one of the chunks of, of Robotech we really liked. So it's interesting now that you point that out. It's like I can see the connections and why maybe I was predisposed to liking uh, a new next wave generation. So it has all those great ingredients. All right. Indeed. I guess we should talk about the show, huh? Or I could just sit here and prattle on about how much I <laughs> We can keep doing that, but we should probably actually mention that the individual episodes. All right. Since if you insist. Um, <laughs> so we actually broke in this episode down, this, ah, the series down to two different episodes. We're going to cover the first four today, and then we'll cover the next four soon. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do Bubblegum Crash. No, we had talked about doing it, but the more, at least for my ends, uh, the more I researched it, the more I've heard it, it's not good. And even the original creators like distance themselves from it. And it's like, you know what? We both love Crisis. Let's just talk about Crisis. But it's so long that we have to kind of spread it in two parts. So the first episode, it's uh, Tinsel City. I'm going to give a quick sort of synopsis of it. Then we can jump around and touch on anything that we want to specifically in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a new type of boomer appears and it t- whose battles the 80 police and it takes the night sabers who are a group of mercenaries to show up to defeat the boomer. They're then Ooh. hired by the space force. Stop and think a minute about that folks. Space force. Is there a space force now? Mm. Yes. Uh, <laughs> to rescue a kidnapped girl and return a computer technician. And that's initial offer they receive from the Space Force. But they deduce in that meeting that there's something more. And the Space Force admits that the girl is special and the technician may have been a spy. And so then the rest of the episode involves the Night Sabers trying to track down the technician and the girl. And it turns out the technician is a boomer and the girl is in fact a boomer that can control the satellite overhead. And all their clues slowly lead back to Genome, which is a massive company that controls, we'll say, 60% of all the essential life, all the essential resources like electricity, water, all those things. But Mm -hmm. they also are making these boomers and secretly making super cool prototype boomers in a plan to take over the world. Yeah. And... uh... Man, I don't even know where to start. Uh, <laughs> beginning, one thing that I think, I mean, obviously we've talked about how this is uh, heavily inspired by Blade Runner and the Terminator. But one one part of its DNA that I don't think people talk a lot about is the very clear MTV influence, right? Oh, yeah. Like there are chunks, the very beginning of this episode is basically a music video. Uh, Pris is on stage, but how she's intercut with her stage performance intercut with the the story of this boomer going uh, rampaging and the AD police trying to track it down and failing all while uh, Hurricane is playing is so clearly music video storytelling from that late 80s style. And it's funny for a what, 45-minute episode, there's actually a lot of storytelling that happens in that initial video. You, you get a lot of the basics of the world pretty quickly and with a really great song to boot. So it's 
extremely efficient. Uh, like you, you, there's a group called 80 police. They're going after these killer robots. There's another group of people who are also out to fight them. They have uh, some kind of suits and uh, one of them is a rock star. Another of them uh, is another, there's another woman in the team who is in the crowd, but seems to have a relationship with her because at one point she has a hand signal as the song ends to kind of like a, kind of wrap it up signal. Uh, there's a third woman who apparently has something to do with computers and seems to be involved in monitoring the situation. You're getting a ton and that's in like five minutes. So it's, it does not drag at all, which is surprising for what's functionally a 45 minute, twice as long cartoon episode. It is epic in scope, if not in, sorry, it's epic in scale, if not in scope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's all just this one city. Yeah. And the other thing is that we that I didn't touch on is that this is mega, in Mega Tokyo is basically it survived a second massive earthquake and it's rebuilt itself back up in the years 2032. And that earthquake, I think, happened in 2025. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons that genome sort of came to prominence is because they offered all these great resources and they helped rebuild the city. So they've sort of have this illusion how most evil corporations do of being there for the people doing the best they can while they have their own secret machinations and plots going on behind the scenes. And you learn somewhere mm-hmm. during the show, I'll just drop this one here is that the boomers are actually initially built by Sill's father who is killed by genome. And so Sill has all this great advanced technology, which is where they get their heart suits from. Right. One thing that's interesting about, uh, Japanese cyberpunk at this time versus uh, Western cyberpunk is a lot of Western cyberpunk is uh, the world has gone to shit and we kind of caused that and it was over a period of time. Um, so your um, Snow Crash, your uh, Neuromancer, all that genre is, is bad things happen, but probably were assholes in result of that. A lot of Japanese cyberpunk is a specific horrible thing happened to our city, and now we're recovering from that. Uh, Akira was um, the the bomb at, at the Olympics, the Olympic Stadium. Um, and here, as you said, uh, there's an earthquake that devastated the area. So there's an interesting sense of, of a, a lot of – there's an argument that's been made of a lot of Japanese anime ultimately points to at what point in time do you find the nuclear weapon allegory. Uh, and usually – with Japanese cyberpunk, it's before the show even starts. You know, it's it's like <laughs> we're, we're living with this this post World War II, you know, struggling with 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 that like that 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 realization that reality. Um, so it's always interesting because it sets a different tone. Um, a lot of Japanese cyberpunk is about rebuilding, and what horrible people will do to take advantage of a society that's trying to rebuild. And that's what makes Genome an interesting antagonist in this, because on the surface, they're not the obviously evil corporation. It's the, well, just the corporation that basically put us all together again. So yeah, they have a lot of power because look at all the good they've done and having autonomous people to help us rebuild seems like a plausible thing, but the show never once lets you slide into thinking, that it's you know no, everything about them the way that uh, uh, the antagonists are situated the way the boomers position like no they're all evil and horrible so so you're you're always firmly on the side of the night sabers but all of the supporting characters give plausible reasons why Genome might be believed to be 
uh, a genuinely benevolent organization, even though we as the viewers never buy into that. Well, they're literally mustache twirling villains, which is yeah, yeah. nice to see sometimes. Just this is our bad guy. They're bad because they want to be bad for money and power. Right. Mm-hmm. So I will I will admit now a uh, a a flub in my own reading of, of science fiction over the years. The first time I read Gibson was about seven years ago. Oh, okay. So I didn't have that point of reference for any of my my cyberpunk exposure. Mm-hmm. Which has been it, a, a strange influence to now see that in comparison to what I'd seen before and sort of start making linkages over from the decades. Yeah, it's interesting. I I could probably do a whole podcast on cyberpunk and maybe cyberpunk could be a season we do at one point. But um, cyberpunk as a literary movement and how it works as literature is about three years long. It's very specific to late Cold War up until around the USSR dissolves. Um, after that, the resonances just become tropes and trappings without context. Uh, a lot of the fears that it brings are unrelated. But there is an interesting reciprocal cycle of cyberpunk where in Western cyberpunk, a lot of it was like, oh, the J- Japanese are going to basically become this economic power and rule rule everything. And Japanese cyberpunk is like, how in the hell are we going to survive all of this? Jesus Christ, we're barely holding on. Um, so you have these two almost warring views of cyberpunk that yet merge into popular consciousness extremely well because they're both talking to larger concerns. And I think it's one of the reasons why cyberpunk in lots of forms has still resonated is because on some level, they're still talking about anti-capitalist concerns and what happens when society gets in too much in control of things and what happens if we lose track of what technology is bringing to our lives. Um, it helps that, you know, again, shows like Bubble and Crisis, you're, you're having these, these concerns sublimated under what is just a genuinely cool and fun story about rock and roll women who are beating up on evil robots. And that's just a genuinely fun thing to watch while also going, yeah, no, I I really can see why I would want to punch these people in the face. (laughs) So can we talk about, hmm, how I I put this, their economic status? Because even as you're watching the first episode and you find they're mercenaries, so they're doing most of their nights ever work for cash and money. Mm-hmm. Pris is living in a warehouse shed because even like the view that shows a poster on the wall and everything else has her like sleeping bag in it. Yeah. And I forgot her name now. The aerobics instructor is living maybe middle class. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the team leader who is obviously has money either from her father who worked for Genome, the lingerie shop, or <laughs> is keeping all the money that they're generating and paying them like a stipend. Kind of how the Avengers got get paid get paid a stipend in the right. comic. I think it mm. was in the nineties when they said it was like a thousand bucks a week or something like that. Right. Wow, good callback. I, I had forgotten that storyline. But that was that was under Gyrick's run, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Good job. <laughs> Damn. That's gonna be our next podcast, by the way. We're gonna do we're gonna start a second <laughs> podcast. It's just uh all comics all day. <laughs> yes, I'm in. And we're each going to have to like pull random deep pocket things to see if the other one can remember where it came from. <laughs> Jesus, I would lose that so bad.
Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it, it's um, this is the archetype of the the poor shadow runner, if you will. You know, a lot of cyberpunk games specifically use this trope of your mercenaries who need money and you will take dirty jobs and ultimately get screwed by people who are using you as a disposable freelancer. All, you see a lot of that in Bubblegum Crisis. That's kind of almost the archetypal setup. And yet, much like those games, it doesn't make a ton of sense when you think about it. Uh, my headcanon, and maybe the second half of the show actually goes to this, I don't think so, but um, my headcanon has always been that because the suits are implied to be experimental, that they need the money to constantly maintain these extremely bleeding edge suits. And that's where they're basically do jobs with their power suits to get the money to keep their power suits up so they could do more jobs. It just becomes kind of like a, almost a sunk cost fallacy. Um, but there's the thread underneath of it of why they're, they're doing it for money, but also they would probably do it anyway. They see, they generally are positioned as decent people, uh, particularly the, the, um, woman is a traffic cop whose name I forget um, it, it's, they, they would just they would do this out of fineness of their heart but they recognize that they need the money to be able to continue to do what they want to do but it is still weird Hit Cannon accepted though <laughs> Ray so how did you like basically that they are replicants from Blade Runners and then when they get into a confrontation that's a real fight they sort of rip out and become terminators. I, it, it, you know, what's funny is I didn't actually notice the references the first time I watched it. Um, I think Terminator and Blade Runner were fuzzy enough in my head that I didn't catch the connection. It's only been like later that I look back. Oh, okay, I see the obvious references. But I think for anime, it makes sense. Uh, like. We noticed this a bit in the big, although we didn't talk about it. Like all the police are military police, you know, and and they're not cops; they have tanks. Uh, and with the same thing with the AD police here, right? Like they they have a, f- a vast array of weaponry, so you can't have Decker with a pistol mowing down things. It has to be bigger and badder because you have to explain why these power suits are needed in this conflict. So you have to have massively powerful robots. So it makes sense that you use the replicant setup, but the Terminator power glow up to actually sell how engaging they are. Uh, what bugged me upon rewatching it is that um, they're supposed to be infiltrating society. And yet at every available opportunity, the boomers almost always immediately reveal themselves to be obviously robots, <laughs> like catching people's hands and squishing their hands or like people punch them and not selling the punch. And I'm just like, you are terrible at infiltration. You're stuck at this job. But they, they're still in that first wave. This is like the second wave of boomers that we're getting. So maybe that software hasn't been updated yet. <laughs> Possibly. It's like, you need to be patched. Clearly, this is, this is not working out for you. Because uh, the closest they have to someone that could do that was Cynthia, who was a little girl. No, true. And that's true. until you really interacted with her. Right. And also, I mean... Talking about about homages, Cynthia is another homage to to Akira, which the the manga came out a few years before this, and it main plot seat was a, a young child who escaped from an evil corporation who was in control of massive powers that she didn't entirely understand or couldn't control. 
So, I mean, there's another reference there. I will not shout out Tetsuo or Kaneda Tetsuo. during this episode. We need to talk about it, Kara. I have so many thoughts about it. No, so I, I, I would love to have sort of deep, in-depth analysis of it, but now having rewatched it, I'm not saying there aren't deeper sort of meanings to it, but Bubblegum Crisis feels a lot more flash and just cool for cool sake. No, absolutely. Um, You can tell that this is more contemporaneous with Robotech than like, you know, uh, I'm using Akira, but I mean, um, it's not necessarily trying to tell a deeper story. It's just, it happened to hit at a particular moment in time where those things clicked into place. I mean, I I think part of that was because um, uh, by homaging uh, popular Western films, it's something that exports more easily to the U.S. Because this was, if I understand correctly, one of the first OVAs where the translation was actually relatively close to the Japanese script, as opposed to we watched Voltron, we watched uh, Robotech, where there's much more uh, liberties taken in localization. This is one where they kept relatively close to the script, but they have uh, Western-sounding names, and we go, oh, I know how these kinds of robots work, because I've seen these movies. So uh, I, I, I think, again, it's kind of my story before, I think th- th- it's giving you something like by by not by taking some of the pieces away and just focusing on the cool and the flash, it gives you the impression of there's a deeper undercurrent here that may or may not actually be there. Can I say though that I would have loved to have seen this team create an Iron Man anime? Oh God, yeah! Like that would have been gorgeous to to see. Mm-hmm. Oh, and um, something I, I didn't mention about the, the structure of the episodes. Um, it's very common in, well, really television, but particularly anime, where you'd have 30, or a minute or a minute and a half of intro, uh, you know, you, a common intro, like the, the, the titles, the credits, song, to introduce the show, and then uh, a similar packaged minute, minute and a half of outro credits. Uh, and Bubblegum Crisis does not do it. It's, it's much more modern in the sense of you get just the Bubblegum Crisis name, uh, you get the title of the episode, and you, you're in. It, it, it's a very, very short open. It's much closer to the 15-second intros you get in television now. So that's one of the places where I thought it, it uh, was actually aged extremely well. Uh, and also all the credit sequences, uh, sometimes the plot runs into the credits, um, but always there's a new song and usually there's a new uh, a bit of animation at the end. So there's a reason to kind of watch towards the end of it. Uh, so it's not quite a post-credit sequence, but it has the same feel of them. So again, it, it feels much more like modern television in a lot of ways, which is surprising considering this is 30 years old at this point. It's just genius. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything else you would like to say about the first episode? No, I think we covered it because it basically sets up everything of the basic story here. All right. Episode two, Born to Kill. In this one, you basically have a friend of the aerobics instructor whose fiance is killed by an ah, killed in an incident during a a genome incident that goes wrong. And Mm -hmm. she wants to expose what happened and genome wants to silence her. And you have 
new, more powerful boomers than before. Right. And part of the, and by the end of the episode, they've also taken some of the bits of the Cynthia boomer and install them. Mm -hmm. And I'm right. This is where we start seeing Brian Mason's mentioned in the first episode. I think Brian Mason's actually positioned as a meaningful character in this episode, right? Yeah. He sort of comes to fruition. Right. Cause this is kind of, cause the first two episodes are basically the Mason arc. Um, and this is a good episode because this is kind of where my, my point too was. Like, I think the night savers would probably do good things without the financial incentive. Uh, because this is basically, Hey, my friend's fiance died. Tied this corporation. We all hate. So, Hey, here's a reason to go beat them up. Uh, and money isn't really discussed for her case. Uh, they absolutely charged the Space Force, but they didn't really charge this person. Well, the Space Force also was attempting to spy on them and figure out how their technology works, which it tells Right. Them. Right. Uh, no, this was um, a good episode. It had a more investigative feel to it, mm-hmm. which the first episode had bits of it, but this seemed to like lean more into it. And it also highlights more and more how Pris is really the main character. Yeah. Because most of the um, the actual investigative work is primarily done by press. If there is an encounter, press is usually at the incident when it happens and is trying to punch a boomer, which never turns out well. <laughs> she she always punches someone and they're always a boomer and she's always surprised by it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I forgot to mention in the first episode, the primary 80 police uh, detective we interact with is Leon, who has a massive crush on press. And it goes into that weird pervy sort of crush, but it like sort of flirts back and forth between not being that and being that. It's, it's interesting. One thing I like about the Leon Pris relationship is, uh, Pris is extreme, like aggressively annoyed by Leon at first. Um, like, uh, he hits on her when he sees her motorcycle and she's like, Hey, you're 80, please. He's like, yeah. And trying to use that to impress her. And she's like, Maybe you should stop trying to chase ass and chase boomers instead. I mean, so she's like, do your fucking job and stop trying to hit on me, <laughs> which I'm like, I am here for you. Um, but as the relationship is moving in here, it's so clear that she is only talking to him when he is useful to her and then immediately drops him and he is still okay with it. So it's like, she she definitely is coming across by like, if he's dumb enough to keep coming back, I'm going to keep doing this. And so it's like, it, it is creepy, but also she is completely in control of this entire situation. She's never once objectified by Leon in that respect. I mean, like she's like, no, I keep toying this guy along until he stops being useful to me. And the other big thing that I really want to point out is that it has continuously shown the 80 police, maybe the best police, but they're, incapable of handling the boomers and situations that are going on. Yeah. And the one thing it does highlight though, is that Leon for all of the negative aspects, the character is useful and wants to be a more active part of chains than what he is. As he discovers things, he tries to lend aid when he can, but also he never breaks a law. Yeah. Which will be a little bit more important in the next episode. Right. Um, and and it, we're again seeing that kind of Commissioner Gordon Batman dynamic, right? Of like, 
there are certain things that Leon can do inside the system that the Night Sabers can't do. But more often than not, the Night Sabers are going to be able to take the actions that the police are hamstrung by or just frankly incompetent and unable to manage. And there's also a moment during the, the first four episodes where Leon notes that Pris is at another incident where this happens and the Night Sabers were there. And he sort of gives like that wink to the camera. Could she be? Nah. Right. Which goes more into the Commissioner Gordon Batman sort of dynamic again. But also, the team is never afraid. Like, they, they, they have a weird relationship with AD police. Like, they recognize what the AD police do, but they also have no respect for them institution. Um, I think it's this episode where uh, the AD police are trying to track them down, and they're actually, no, it's the first episode. Um, they're trying to follow them back to their home base, and they actually. Uh, uh, burn graffiti into the concrete basically saying fuck you and then just they vanish they, they change out of their costumes and, and disappear and the AD police can't find them um, that's the Space Force oh that's the Space Force okay AD police has not tried to, to track them that, that I can remember it's usually like the Space Force because that's when they're scanning their tech and that's when they mention the satellite right, above right, right okay that, 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 that's my mistake but to be fair it is a bit muddy at times where the Space Force and an AD police begin occasionally. They're kind of lumped into the local governments at times. Yeah. And the really cool part about this episode, though, is that you have the boomers dressed almost like cool Rachel-esque Blade Runners type replicants that are running around doing all their stuff. And they mm-hmm. track down and they actually kill, uh, I think her name's Liana's friend. So the night sabers fail. Yeah. Trying to protect and save this person. It is a straight up. You did not succeed at all at doing this. Which is, it's honestly really interesting. Um, On the one hand, if you look at this from a television show perspective, in a relatively modern television perspective, you need to have the heroes fail so they can come back later. You're, you're thinking about the long arc. Uh, but A, this was not written in a time where that was common. And B, you're waiting months between episodes. So really, each of these are kind of mini movies that all have a continuity. So to have your second episode end on a downbeat is actually a pretty strong choice. Is there anything else you'd like to bring up about Born to Kill? Uh, the only other thing I want to bring up is uh, we need to talk about Celia's brother because oh, yeah. you mentioned Leon's a creep. Celia's brother's oh. way creepy. Oh. Maybe I blocked that out purposely. <laughs> he is straight up creepy on his sister and I'm not okay with it. And it's one of the right, things I watched back. I didn't remember the subplot at all. I was like, what is happening here? Now that you said it, all like all these images have flooded back to my brain. Yes, very, very much so. Even some of his dialogue that he says about trying to catch his sister is very yeah. bad. <laughs> oh, uh, now that that that's also in mind. This is also, I think, the the first episode where we see nudity from the characters. Yes, um, not the only one. The first one. It's. Uh, Fan service is kind of an interesting line here. Uh, like a lot of times, even the name of it is we put the nudity in here just because our audience are usually teenage boys, young men, and this is the kind of thing they want to see. Um, and when you have a task of four attractive women, we want to see them naked. 
But um, it never bothered me in this show, at least because at least in these episodes, I don't know if it changes later. Um, it's that they're usually shown the context of them putting their suits on. You know, it's like, okay, we're, we're getting ready for battle. So they're not necessarily doing provocative things. It's just like, okay, well, I'm, you know, I don't want to get my shit torn up while I'm inside this robot suit. So I'm just going to take clothes off, put the robot suit on, let's go. Uh, and the robot suits themselves are almost surprisingly, like they're, they're full covered. Um, you don't see any skin whatsoever. I've seen so many quote unquote armor suits for women in these kinds of shows where it's like, what is that protecting? And they know these are genuinely body suits. Uh, they, they have high heels, but also that heel is a rocket on the bottom. Uh, <laughs> so it's like, okay, I can actually kind of see why that's structured that way. You don't want to have your foot right next to the thing that's putting flame out. So uh, it, 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 I don't want to excuse it. There's definitely nudity here and we know why that nudity is there, but it never come across as crass to me. I had forgotten it was there. So it was. it's much like um, Southern Cross when we watched it. I was caught unawares. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I was surprised by it too, honestly. But it's also so fast. It's like blink and miss it, really. <laughs> but it's, always, it's almost always press, it seems. So whatever. Uh, anything else for Born to Kill? Nope, let's go to Blow Up. All right, so the first two episodes are actually setting up for this, which is going to be the final confrontation with Brian Mason. And the synopsis for this one goes, basically, genome boomers are terrorizing Megatokyo once again, and the AD police can't really seem to stop them. When While genome is terrorizing them, uh, Shoho, a young boy who Pris looks after after when the mom's at work, because the mom works incredibly long hours, and she's a friend with the with the kid. She's a friend with the mom. And unfortunately, this also touches on a housing issue that goes on because since Genome ha- owns it so much, really owns so much of Tokyo, of Mega Tokyo, they've equivalent. Ah, get to bring in my history now. They're redlining different people in the area, mm-hmm. which they're buying. They're making. They're charging for sort of reverse redlining. Actually, they're charging them. They're making them sell their housing for considerably less. So they can buy it, and then they will demolish other housing yep. to acquire more and more land at a discounted price. It's going to be worth more money on the back end. Mm-hmm. And during this, Pris's friend, the boy's mother, gets killed, and Pris decides to go on a revenge attack against Genome, but is stopped by the other Night Sabers who bring up they have a moral code that they can't go and do anything alone. They don't go for vengeance, and instead, mm-hmm. all the Night Sabers mount up. And they have an attack on Geome. And that's when you have the final confrontation between Mason and Celia, who Mason gets killed, but discovers who Celia is. And they kill Mason and basically stop Genome. And I feel like if this had been the end of the episode, and, if you, and honestly, if you just put these three episodes together and made it to a movie, I think it would have been a very satisfying experience. Um, but as an episode, you're right. It, it's almost entirely payoff for the previous two episodes. So it doesn't quite work as a standalone thing. You have to kind of know who Pris is. Um, you have to kind of know why this is the way it is. Uh, but you're right. It's also from cementing Pris is the protagonist, whether the writer's in there or not. From an audience perspective, Pris is the protagonist because she's the one we're cheering for to get revenge on on this evil corporation. 
Um, and again, we're moving even further away from the uh, highly mercenary moments. Again, episode one, it's the we'll do work for the government because they pay us well. Episode three is like, I'm going to burn this corporation down because they <laughs> killed a kid in the slums that I like. Uh, and again, I am 100% behind doing exactly that. Uh, they do a do nice setup of establishing her relationship with the kids. Uh, it does kind of come out of nowhere, but for relatively episodic TV, it, it's fine. Um, you know, they have a birthday party with the kid to give him a little toy, um, which uh, they, they have a heartbreaking moment where they're, they're demolishing the tenement. And the boy goes back in, tries to run in. Mother. To, no, no. The boy originally tries to run in. Pris stops him. The mother then runs around her while she's holding back the boy to run in to grab the money. And she, that's where she dies. She's actually holding their savings crushed under a cement block. Um, and it's, it's, again, telling in a very short space a lot, not only about these characters, but the world. Uh, the fact that that was so important to her that she risked her life to do that. Because early in the episode, you had her telling Pris the story that she's working all these extra long hours to save up money so they can move out to the country and out of Mega Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Like that's her dream for herself and her child, which is another, by the way, uh, touchback to Blade Runner, who at the end of the movie, you see if. If I'm going to spoil you on Blade Runner now, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. Right. Um, Decker and Rachel in the car, depending on which cut you watch, uh, going out into the country. Yes, in the bad cut, that is what happens. Yes. <laughs> the original theater. This is not a Blade Runner say. podcast, other than technically it is a Blade Runner podcast. Um, it is now. Um, but yeah, um, and th- th- there's definitely another kind of homage to, and, and that would have been the version that these people probably saw, was that version of them going out to the country and that being the, the, the good ending. Only they don't get that here. <laughs> and um, so, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, the, I just want, it, I want to talk about the combat scene. So if you want to talk about this more, then go ahead. Um, I just want to touch back on how Pris is the protagonist character, because even though uh, Celia is the team leader and sort of like the backbone of the team that controls everything and moves along. And she lost her father to the genomes company. Mason is her arch enemy. Her story never takes precedence over Pris's. Yeah. And there's almost sort of a um, a prior- prioritization for each of the characters. And it starts with Pris at 60%, probably Celia at about 20 or 30. The aerobics instructor, I don't remember, is about 15. And the computer hacker, 80 police person, about 5%. Right. The fact that we don't remember their names tells you how much they stick out. Like even in my notes that I have here, the name that constantly reoccurs in the short little snippets is always Pris. Pris. Mm-hmm. Pris does this. Pris does that. Pris tries to punch a Terminator, that a a boomer <laughs> that looks a lot like Arnold. <laughs> oh god, I just love the fact that Pris will punch anything. All right, sorry, you're saying come back. Oh, uh, the the fight um, against Mason, where the, you say they all suit up and they fight. Um, uh. On the one hand, I talked about this in the big O about destruction being almost beautiful in how much detail they're animated for. And we see that again here uh, because there's points where like Mason is grabbing the suits and squeezing and you hear the metal crunch and you see the metal buckle under his hands. 
it's it's a little tiny touches of animations that make that scene just really pop but also it's so visceral like the previous fights have been kind of i'm a night saber pew 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 and you know uh, and you know, shoot this guy and you know explosions and they're, they're they're cool looking scenes but that's it they're 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 cool they're they're interesting everyone's in cool poses this is a fight you know people are you know, punching and scratching they're ripping pieces off of each other and mason dies by being stabbed in the throat um it's just raw and emotional in a way that the previous two episodes hadn't been and it's a surprising change of pace but it really sells the uh, uh aggression that pris is going through in a way a beautiful show don't tell in my opinion Celia. Oh, was it Celia that killed? I thought it was Chris for me. Yeah, right. It's Celia that kills him. Yes, because this is this episode basically gives us, I think, as much of Celia's character development as we've had throughout the entire first three episodes. No, that, that, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, and the one thing I did want, sorry, to go back to is this is also the episode that shows that Leon will always obey the law, even when their genome's about to demolish all the housing. And he knows mm-hmm. they bought yeah. the housing through questionable methods. He says everything they're doing is legal and I can't do mm-hmm. anything. Yep. Which I, I liked because um, uh, we talked about Leon's kind of kind of scummy in episode one. He's useful in episode two. So I was like, oh, I kind of like this guy. And in episode three, he tries to wade in and help out uh, uh, Pris and the rest of the Night Sabers. But then he's like, I can't do anything. Um, and so Pris rightly calls him out. I was like, and then what good are you? Um, so it, it's a nice touch because like we start to like the character and it's like, yeah, but you're still part of the institution, so fuck you. Um, it, it's an interesting plot point and, and I think it's it's uh, well-deserved. And that feels very cyberpunk. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is like at the end of the episode, you have the 80 police showing up after the battle's all over. Mason's dead. And in Mason's blood, written out is nightsabers. Mm-hmm. Not even <laughs> sort of sort of cementing. We were here. We did this. Which again is an interesting touch because uh, and it was implied in episode one that they were not well known. Again, early Batman, you know, more of a myth or a legend. Um, and now they've reached a stage where it's like. No, we killed this guy. We straight up murdered him. <laughs> this happens. Um, so now they are moving to a different phase where it, it's clearly not about the money anymore. It is about trying to strike a blow against a corrupt institution. And that is really cemented because this is the time where they actually bring up that they started when they started all this, they had their own moral code which infers so many different things about the actions they're willing to take and what they're not willing to do. And when someone is about to break the code, how the rest of the team shows up to help that person so they don't go over, step over the line. Which is interesting because um, I like the fact that they have this moral code, but also through subtle characterization, they show how they're willing to bend their own code because Cilia is one of the people who reinforce the code. It's like, you know, we can't go after people for vengeance. Pris is the one's like, no, we just need to kill these guys. But then Celia's like, the code says you can't go alone because we're coming with you. But as you point out, all this episode is like, she is the one who 
should be the most interested in killing Mason specifically. So there's this interesting dynamic of like, if it was just me, I couldn't do that because I, I, I believe in this code. But now my friend is also mad at the same person. So it's almost like I'm going to kind of find a loophole in my own moral code to do the thing I wanted to do anyway. But she's so cool about it, cool in the, the reserved sense. Um, so like letting Pris kind of lead the charge against this, but she's going to apply a tactical logic to this. But then you're right. I, I misremember this, but now that we're talking about it, you're right. She's the one that lands the final blow because she's the one who's able to kind of outthink Mason and ultimately get him killed. Uh, but it's like, at that moment, I, re I remembered thinking, it's like, she should have been the person who wanted to kill him anyway. Pris just kind of gave her the situation she wanted to have. But that was a situation of her own making. <laughs> you know, they came up with this code that restricted her from doing the things she wanted to do. So it's interest there's a lot of interesting subtle character from it, which, is, which goes back to the, the show alludes to depths. But the depths are not complicated depths. They're just more showing character motivation rather than the characters telling you this is what I want to do. It's more like a wading pond than a pool. Right, yeah. There's something under there, but it's mostly just characters doing what they want them to do. Do you have anything else about episode three? Blue nope, I think, I think that's it for that one. All right, uh, we're moving to the last episode for this. Ah, the last episode for this episode. That's some good writing right there for you. By yeah, the way. it's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, Revenge Road. It's about a year later from the attack on Genome, and Genome has not done anything. It's been incredibly silent. So the Night Sabers are actually hurting for money. You have Pris racing around on a slightly revved up bike by Celia's brother. And during the process of trying to get the her current bike with more gas, she sees that the younger brothers built this super supercharged bike that he's afraid to let anyone ride. And later on that night, Pris stumbles over onto a new case, which basically is a modified race car called the Griffin that's terrorizing bikers and street toughs. And when the night sabers finally confront the car and those seeking vengeance, the car itself gains a form of sentience and it takes the night sabers and the AD police to stop it. This episode is one of my favorite scenes of Pris walking into the garage and going, hey, what's going on? And then making fun of, of, of the owner, keeps keep calling him Pops. It's like, no, I'm doctor. Doctor! Doctor. But um, she's like, yeah, what about this bike? It's like, yeah, I built it myself, blah, blah, blah. And he starts talking about how fast it goes. She's like, really? It's like, yeah, but it's too dangerous to drive. And she's like, and immediately in your head, you can see her going, that's a challenge. I'm accepting that. <laughs> um, and she gets on the bike and almost falls off because it's so powerful. And like no one in the audience is surprised when you're like, you want, I'm going to ride that bike. <laughs> <laughs> By the end of this episode, I am riding this thing. Um, it, again, it's, it's just so characterized. It was not only characterized Pris, but also her relationships with the other supporting cast of that, that garage. Um, like the fact that at the ends, uh, she, when she, when she sucks up to him to, to get to ride the bike, she's like, come on, doctor. It's like, you can call me pops. You know, <laughs> it's like, she's so, she's not subtle at all. She is a brick. <laughs> it's wonderful because some of the other characters are like, you know, I'm going to carefully skirt the edges of the person. Like, I want the thing. Let me do the thing. I'm doing it now. <laughs> it's great. So this episode also 
goes back and touches on something you just mentioned, how Celia is a tactical member of the team because they start off having a paintball, having their own sort of paintball yeah. I'm assuming to keep their skills up. Mm-hmm. And you have her telling uh, Pris and the computer hacker, who's, I feel like her name starts with an N. Mm-hmm. Um, that you already lost. I put a gas bomb. You've already stepped on it. It's over. And they say, what? And you get this little gas thing goes, poosh. And they go, we lost again? Like that shows so much of the characters and like their own development just in that two minute scene. And it was a great little comedy bit. Like she picks her foot up and we get the, the, the saddest little puff of smoke. <laughs> it's like, it's a, that's a horrible bomb. She's basically, <laughs> there's great little bits of humor in this show. Um, they're, they're not overplayed. Um, but yeah, the, the paintball scene is, is a perfect example. And also the fact that uh, uh, Celia straight up sacrifices Nene. Um, they didn't talk job. about that. Did you look up her name? Yes, I did. <laughs> ah. Lena and Nene. Um, uh, but like, you know, you know she, she gets shot down. Um, and of course, it, it seems, it's, it's it's almost a trope at this point where it's like, you know, the, the, the heroes are fighting against each other and then they get shot and then like, you know, red paintballs it's like, and then she sighs. It's like, oh, and it's like, hey, it's, we, we realize it's, it's a simulation. Um, but then Celia takes the rest of them out and then they remark it's like, She's so cold. She sacrificed Nene just to, just to win. And again, you start to see that chess player vibe, which is funny doing that after the Mason arc because we saw that she could be brutal, but she never lost her cool, unlike Pris, who was just you know an unguided missile. Uh, so this actually, by putting in this order, it helps backfill and sell. Okay, no, she was waiting for the right moment to kill Mason, She'd always planned to kill him, but it was very tactical and surgical, even though it looked like it was spontaneous. She had that planned, which is interesting. Just thinking randomly now. Other than saying it was like a year later and they're hurting for cash, if you cut the year later line, how do you think the episodes have gone if you put Revenge Road first and then Tinsel City and everything else? Uh, so Revenge Road is the Revenge Road episode? episode one. Then Tinsel Cities two, and it goes down like that. Um, I, I think that would certainly reposition Celia as the okay. This is the this is the protagonist of the show. Um, but then it would be awkward because the show itself would not bear that out because then you have Pris so much of the spotlight of Tinsel City and Born to Kill. Um, I think if you move Revenge Road up between Born to Kill and Blow Up. Hmm. Uh, because then you have um, they do a job for the Space Force they do a job for uh, Lena's f- uh, friend's fiance they do a job for uh, d- you know just, uh, just to get this random car off the streets and then uh, you go after Mason you start to establish they're doing this for the people and then you end with now we're taking out the corporation that's causing all these ills but I, I see your point. I, I think I think honestly, again, these are tapes that were released out of order. So also, I think I watched Revenge Road before I saw Blow Up. So um, it didn't really play that oddly to me anyway. So I mean, I I, I think if you, get, if you watch it out of order, it, you still get the general flow anyhow. Because I enjoyed this episode, but it felt like a filler episode after those first three or somewhat linked. I think it's fair. 
And so I was just trying to figure out how I would have rearranged him if I was a, if I was like a script doctor where they're bringing him over, like what I would have done. And I see your the, point. I think I would actually put it potentially after Tinsel City and not before Tinsel City. But then you get the impression of, or the progression of works for an institution, uh, works for an objective good, works for a personal good, destroys Mason for personal reasons. I, that you write that mm-hmm. might be better flow. Better and you clean. also get a break from the boomers. Right. Because I'll, that's the other thing is like, uh, uh, the show is like, boomers are bad, boomers are bad, boomers are bad. Car, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> And if you, you move it in there, it's the, okay, boomers are a threat, but they're not like everyday threats, which is the first episode implies that boomers are pretty rare. So the fact that boomers are a problem every single episode really puts the lie to that. But if you move something like this in there, then that filler episode actually gives us some space. So I can see that working. Um, that being said, this is actually a, a, a fun episode, but I agree with you. It's especially watching it this way. It was a weird one to end on the, this yeah. chunk of our watching because it, it, it is kind of just like a, uh, especially after the such a cathartic blow up. But the actual episode itself, if you take all that out of consideration, just look at what it's trying to do. It's really interesting. It, it <laughs> weirdly feels like a Batman episode. Because um, <laughs> his arc reminded me of Mr. Freeze, right? Um, in the sense of a guy gets obsessed with a horrible trauma that happened in his life and latches on to a piece of technology that th- and this thing must be the one that takes me up and that technology ultimately takes him over uh in this case it's in a car they they, they constantly reiterate it's an old car which is interesting because like to us it looks like retro future car but and like no this car is ancient and it's like that car is badass i want that car what are you talking about me too <laughs> um but like he keeps adding stuff on and adding stuff on adding stuff on and it it, it gets more and more out of control uh, and eventually, you know, he does get his vengeance, but it's also super clear that he's not, no one's happy with this. Um, the woman he's trying to protect is not happy about this. He's not happy about this. Nobody gets a good ending out, out of this, this, this horrible car caper. So, I mean, as a just a, a short story in and of itself, it's a nice, cool episode that does some interesting bit and has some great road combat scenes. But it just suffers in comparison to blow up frankly it was also interesting though to see that they've outsourced their things to pops and his ravens like um garage Mm -hmm. so that was a nice interesting touch but it also that felt like it also came out of nowhere right whereas if you move it up um then you establish them as background characters earlier. And also the more I think about it, the more I think your placing is better because we establish Pris as a biker in Tinsel City and she has a moment where she's chasing someone on the bike, moving that into Revenge Road where she does a much more extreme version of that same scene plays well because her relationship with her bike kind of evolves around board to kill and blow up. Um, and so you could see the logic of, well, then that super bike also can transform. Yeah. It was, it was a really good episode though, but it just feels very out of place, but it could also be because we stopped episode four. <laughs> right. This might be, this is the lead up for another arc. And then the rest of the last four episodes are nothing but sentient, angry cars. <laughs> oh my God. It's Voltron two all over again. 
Um, do you have any other comments on Revenge Road? Other than the fact that the car is cool. Oh, uh, there's one piece actually um, I did notice this time around. Um, they specifically remark in the episode that it is a uh, special car that was imported from overseas and like something that, that hobbyists and, and, and a fanatic car people import. Uh, and I noticed that he, his seating is actually the American style where the driver's side's on the left and the passenger's on the right, but that is flipped from Japanese cars. So he's actually driving an American-style car. Huh. And it was something I didn't notice, but I noticed that in some of the earlier AD police scenes when they have the trucks, you always see the driver on the opposite side. Can I start the episode where Leon's sleeping in the car? Or trying right. to sleep, rather. Right. Yeah, because he's on the right side. So small little thing, but it's something that I think the the... Japanese audience would have immediately glommed on, but as Americans, they're like, oh, of course he's... Most of the scenes are taking place in that car, and so it looks natural to us. Very nice. But that is all. As I have to say about Revenge Road. Since we're doing this one a little different, we're going to be splitting this one. What are your full initial thoughts in the first four episodes? Um, uh, it, it is interesting how the memory cheats. Uh, on the one hand... Before this rewatch, like you, I thought this was like this big interconnected epic, much like Robotech. And then when I sat down to watch it during the watching, I was like, this is extremely episodic and not at all connected. But now that we're talking out, I'm seeing that there are connections, but they are much more short arcs. At least the first three are. And that a lot of the connections and progressions are much more accelerated. So, like, I, I, I reiterate, I think these three, first three, if you re-edit them a little bit, would be a very cohesive movie. You'd have to move some plot points around to make them flow better. But this could just be a film. And that would be about, uh, doing math in my head real quick, 110, 15 minutes. So that's about all right for, for a feature-length film. Um, but they also still work as relatively episodic television. Again, if you've got, a rant, if you've got tape two off the shelf, you'd have a relatively fun experience. Um, but just, it's, I still think, I, it, you can see the shortcuts, but it's still by and far some of the best animation we've seen on, on this run to date. Uh, the music, I cannot say enough about the music. Um, and it's just, it's a joy to watch these things again. So one of the reasons that we didn't do Crash, another one, is that they were going to lose press actually due to contract disagreements by episode four. And the original plan was to kill off press and the fans had a, a massive out outcrying against that. And so they didn't kill press, mm -hmm. but by crash press was no longer singing the songs and the songs weren't as awesome as these songs were. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was a lot less incentive to do crash. If you want some behind the scenes, like gossip, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, uh, I remember from the original Cyberpunk game, uh, constantly rated uh, style over substance, and I never quite got that at the time. But watching this again, I agree in a sense of this has a very specific style, and once you mess with that style, the whole loses something, and it's it starts to fall apart. So I agree. Removing, I would argue. 
uh, uh, there's some characters like Lena that maybe you could stand to remove, but like Pris and Celia, I think at least bring a certain thing to it. Even Leon brings a certain style to the whole thing, it, the music and the the grittiness of it. If you change any one of those pieces, I feel like it's not the same thing anymore. From everything we've watched, I think this would easily be something with a, with the fewest amount of tweaks that you could release now and have it like be on par with current anime. Yeah, I agree. As much as I love Robotech, cannot say the same. No, no, the, the animation has aged well. I mean, there are obvious recycled pieces, but really that's just about any animation show prior to like 10 years ago when computers can make it really cheap to animate new things. So I know we're running long, to, and I, I apologize because I told you that we wouldn't because... <laughs> I made all right, so I made us have to record later in the day because I spent all day paving a drive and like power washing stuff. So we're really recording in the afternoon instead of the morning, and I'm actually drinking a beer right now. But so Eddie, if you had to reoccupationalize the four main leads instead of work being like a admin slash computer computer person for AD police a punk rocker, a lingerie shop owner, and an aerobicizer, what would their occupations be? New game. Um, uh, okay, so um, <laughs> I would uh, I would turn Celia into actually an owner of an explicit detective agency. Um, detective license, the whole nine yards. They, they are quote-unquote legal in that respect, uh, which I think would help explain the, not case of the week, because obviously the, the structure doesn't quite work because it's monthly episodes, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, this is, this is yeah. why we're investigating this random card. This is why we're investigating this fiance's death because we, because we are detectives. And then secretly we're also vigilantes. Um, uh, Nene, I would definitely get her out of the AD police. Um, uh, so I'd probably move her into something like a uh, kind of script kitty nuisance hacker. Uh, someone who um, kind of just does minor petty hacking things and, you know, you know, to kind of overthrow the man. Uh, but that is disguising her actual deep legitimate skills. <laughs> uh, so like it's, it's, she's, she's, oh, she's the person like, you know, does DDoS attacks and just kind of is annoying. So whatever, but then she actually, is really good at her job. Um, Pris, man, it's so hard to not see her as a punk. You can, you know, you can mean, keep her. The, you can keep her the same. I, I'm just saying, what changes you would make, really? Um, I feel like her onstage persona actually kind of goes away after the first episode. I want to see the next if that changes in the last half. Uh, but after the beginning of episode one, her onstage persona, aside from Leon recognizing her on the street. It just kind of goes away. I would probably lean into that more and make her kind of a gem in a holograms kind of dynamic uh, where you know she's using her fame to get into locations so that she can do the job she needs to do. Uh, but she has to balance that with occasionally sucking up and tamping down her anger, which is probably going to get her into problems. Um, and then Lena would uh, probably would have her actually be uh, Celia's uh, secretary at the detective agency. So she's more explicitly kind of a, a support character, um, but also 
because she is overlooked over the other three, um, she can then like infiltrate, you know, maybe some disguise skills or whatever into other places that the other three are a little too high profile to do. So that's how I do that. Nice. Uh, so no, 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 no. Do you have any thoughts? Oh, on that front? Did, did you like how I was about to like go? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> um, and thought my own way through it. I was going to like cheat. So <laughs> for me, um, I would actually have, so yeah, similar to you, but it would actually be a government contracting sort of agency. Okay. So they're an official, there's a lot of negative ramifications associated with that, but it would give them insight into better input into space force and what those folks are doing and let them know more of like what's going on in the city. Mm-hmm. And Nene, was that her name? Yes. Would be an intelligence analyst. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, Lena would actually be not a professor, but maybe like a almost a counselor slash community organizer, someone that like has solid ties into the community that is doing something. Mm-hmm. So that gives like an avenue to find out about all the different stuff from the people in the street. And Pris would either be like a a film stunt woman or an MMA fighter that does the equivalent of like whatever their show is where like stunt people go and they perform like the warrior show that's on TV. So they get they, so there's a popularity associated with it, but it's all about physical stuff and she can use somewhat of feign, but also is like a very physical character to keep with that. I will punch everyone in the face when I, and they piss me off. <laughs> I can totally see that. So it covers a lot of similar bases, but, Slightly different. Nice. Anything else to say about this first half? Uh, no, I think we covered it, especially because we're going to have another half to talk about. So, right. uh, If folks are looking for you online, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter at uh, Pugsteady. That's P-U-G-S-T-E-A-D-Y. You can find my website at Pugsteady.com. Or you can find me on the uh, Darker Hue Discord where people are badgering me into reviewing DC Comics right now. Awesome. Badgering. Uh, if you're looking for me, you can find me in the Darker Hue Discord badgering Eddie to do a DC run. <laughs> you can find my website, uh, DarkerHueStudios.com, that I occasionally visit myself or on Twitter at darker underscore hue. Eddie, would you like to tell the folks the four episodes for next time? We are going to watch uh, Moonlight Rambler, which I almost said Midnight Rambler, which is a very different <laughs> thing. Um, Red Eyes, Double Vision, and Scoop Chase. Awesome. And, the, and those are all on Retro Crush. Um, I want to wrap up with one final word for everybody. And that one word, Hurricane. Tonight, a hurricane. <laughs>